You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. In my lifetime, I expect to see three, four, perhaps even more women on the high court bench. Women not shaped from the same mold, but of different complexions. Welcome back, everybody, dear listeners, to United States of Women. By the time this comes out, the election is behind us. We have success. Yay! Hopefully by that point, any recount requirements have all been done, and this has all died down, and we are just enjoying the holiday season. I'm hoping so, too. Uh, Wishful thinking. Yes. Wishful thinking. (laughs) But, Jessica, today we're going to be talking about another historic scandal and destruction of the man. Oh, (laughs) I like this already. So, we are going to be talking about Ida Tarbell. Okay, Ida Tarbell. The queen of muckraking. Muckery. Muckery. She's also the mother of muckraking. The mother of muckraking. Okay. Um. All right. I kind of know what muckraking is. That's okay. uh, journalism, right? It is journalism. Journalistic term. It is. It, it sounds a lot like it's just like the journalism to just bring down the man, though. <laughs> I mean, pretty close. Okay. Pretty close. So it is. So muckraking was a. It's a. It refers to a specific time period of journalism. Really what it is, is investigative journalism and reform journalism, which, in fact, Ida Tarbell was the first investigative journalist. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Exactly. So it specifically is for investigative journalists between the 1890s and the 1920s who exposed institution and leaders as corrupt. So, yes, the whole point was to take down the man. Yeah. Uh, that's very much what it was. They played a highly visible role during what was called the progressive era at that point. Mm-hmm. We've had a few of those at, at this point. Is this also the wave of unions? They bring about the wave Okay, of all right. So this is very much laying that groundwork. Mm-hmm. But the term for muckrakers Mm -hmm. is pulled from a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Mm -hmm. The full title being The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come is a Christian allegory written by John Bunyan. And No relation? No, just kidding. (laughs) No relation. No relation. Uh, It has also been, which is, this particular book has been cited as potentially, it's disputed, the first novel written in English as its, like, primary. Because it was written in 1687, or 1678. Oh, okay. I was okay. like, wait, what? Yeah, the no. first one? <laughs> so, because it was written in 1678, it is disputed to be the first one written in English as opposed to translated into English from okay. Latin. Because prior to that, a lot of your... Uh, written works would come through the theology route. Yeah, the religious texts, which had to be written in, in Latin. Latin. Yeah. And then were converted to other languages. Mm-hmm. So, President Teddy Roosevelt 
referred to a character from the Pilgrim's Progress as the man with a muckrake who rejected salvation to focus on filth. Basically, a bettering society to better one's standing with God. Yeah. And Teddy Roosevelt referred to this character um, and acknowledged the men who muck rakes are often indispensable to the well-being of society, but only if they know when to stop breaking the muck. Okay. <laughs> so that very much like, yes, you should expose corruption, but only so much corruption. Yeah, like, like not, not all the corruption. We can't let them know everything. <laughs> just some of the corruption. So that's muckraking. So we are, we are definitely dealing with a lot of Ida Tarbell stuff is from that 1890s to 1920s mm-hmm. period. Ida Tarbell is probably a name that you recognize, even if you don't know much about her. Mm-hmm. Because she is the woman who brought down the Standard Oil Company and took on Rockefeller. Oh, whoa! <laughs> That's a guy to take on. <laughs> so this, yes, it's very much, she is a giant in her time. Uh, wow. Yeah. And I, I'm putting her with, with Philadelphia because that is where she was born and raised. And where she got the necessary life information Mm -hmm. to take on Rockefeller. Okay. Okay. All right. So, because her her big accomplishments didn't necessarily occur while she was living in Pennsylvania, but they are definitely founded in that. Okay. All right. So, Ida Tarbell was born in Erie County, Pennsylvania, which we have heard so much about yeah. this year, <laughs> on November 5th, 1857, to Esther Ann and Franklin Summer Tarbell, both of whom were teachers at the time when she was born. Teaching. Teaching. So when she was born, so another big historical landmark, 1857, there was a what's called the Panic of 1857, a okay. huge stock market crash. Oh, okay. Where several of the banks collapsed, and people just <laughs> lost all of their savings as, that were in the banks. As they do. As they do. Honestly, like, I wish nobody taught me how banks worked. Yeah, right? <laughs> I don't have a choice, because I don't have a vault, but like... <laughs> I really wish I didn't know how they worked. It's, it's all an illusion. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It's a bit of an illusion. Yeah. So her father, when she was born, mm-hmm. Franklin Tarbell was out in Iowa trying to basically claim farm yeah. during during the land grabs. Yeah. When the 1857 crisis occurred... Oh. And the banks collapsed. The Tarbells lost all of their savings. Yep. So Franklin Tarbell then had to walk from Iowa home to Erie County, Pennsylvania, where Ida Bell had been born. Ida Tarbell had been born in her paternal grandfather's home. Huh. The anecdotal story that I keep, it's one of those like, I don't believe everybody, but it's kind of funny. Supposedly, when he arrived, disheveled and dirty from having walked for 18 months to get home, 
Ida Tarbell is supposedly to have told him to go away, bad man. Go away, bad man. <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I'd believe it. <laughs> I'd believe a child. I'd be like, uh, I don't know who you are. Get out of here, dude. <laughs> I don't know who you are. So, two years later, the Tarbell's family fortune would turn around as the Pennsylvania oil rush would begin in 1859. Okay. Okay. Um, Oil is still very, very big in Pennsylvania. And they lived in a western, because they were in Erie, Mm -hmm. new oil fields were being developed and utterly changing the regional economy. Mm. Ida Tarbell would put in her autobiography that the oil opened a rich field for tricksters, swindlers, exploiters of vice in every known form. That makes sense. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because Ida's father was also a craftsman, he first began by building wooden storage tanks for the oil. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he began to get into the oil industry itself. So in 1860, he moved the family to Roosville, Pennsylvania, hmm. and began to run oil mines or yeah, oil oil fields. Okay. While there, there were several things that would eventually shape Ida Tarbell's image of oil mm-hmm. and the oil industry. Including when the town founder and neighbor, Henry Roos, was drilling for oil and hit a flame of natural gas coming up from the pump. Yep. Roos survived a few hours, which gave him just enough time to write his will and leave his million-dollar estate to the other settlers to build roads for the town. Wow. In total, 18 men were killed during that that incident. And Tarbell's mother cared for one of the burn victims in her home, mm-hmm. in their home. Ida Tarbell then also witnessed three women who died in a kitchen explosion, and she suffered from nightmares basically for the rest of her life because of all of these accidents and seeing the mangled bodies of her friends and neighbors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because that's the thing. Yeah, burn bodies are just very... it's just as a daughter of a firefighter it's it is terrifying and it is something that it my fear for the longest time is burned bodies like that's i watch a lot of gruesome stuff but seeing somebody like on a movie like getting burned alive mm -mm. i look away i can't yeah that it's just sounds oh that is the second worst way to die to me the first being buried alive yeah buried alive would be i I feel like kind of the the same there (laughs) I'm just like, I can't, I can't cope with that. Um, so, uh, Ida Tarbell's father would continue to grow as an oil producer and refiner until what has been known, become known as the Cleveland Massacre or the Cleveland Conquest. During that time, time period, about four months Mm-hmm. In 1872, so, uh, sorry, uh, South Improvement Company, which was another oil company, absorbed 22 of its 26 competitors. 
in wow, the region. Wow, that's not a monopoly at all. No. <laughs> and they did it by receiving discounts and rebates by partnering with railroad companies for the transportation mm. and hiking the prices for the independent refiners. Oof. So this basically tanked. I mean, Tarbell's father's company got absorbed into uh, Southern, the South Improvement Company. Mm-hmm. So this was, this was part number one. Mm-hmm. Part number two that made Ida Tarbell a muckraker was the fact that her parents were very socially active and <laughs> they would continually entertain prohibitionists, women suffragists. They subscribed to Harper's Weekly, Harper's Monthly, the New mm. York Tribune, the Police Gazette. Okay. They would entertain women such as Mary Livermore and Frances E. Willard, mm. some of your founders of the suffragist movement. Mm-hmm. Ida Tarbell initially didn't do so well in school, though. She was considered very, very smart, but very undisciplined. She just didn't care. Um, (laughs) Until, as she describes in her autobiography, one teacher basically point blank told her all of her faults. Oh. Um, (laughs) Which she said was a very humbling moment in her childhood. I'd imagine. Like, you may be smart. But you're useless and... You're useless with it. Use it. Yeah. So, after that, after that kind of, (laughs) for lack of a better word, come to Jesus talk, uh, she put her head down and she really started to discover a love for science. Okay. In particular, biology. The Mm -hmm. ability to study the world around her and take samples home and the things she liked to collect, rocks, plants all being subjects of study. Mm -hmm. So she graduated at the head of her class from high school. And she went on to study biology at Allegheny College in 1876, Mm -hmm. where she was the only woman in her class of 41. Wow. She was it. She particularly had an interest in evolutionary biology. And focused most of her study on uh, the common mud puppy, which is a foot-long amphibian that used both gills and a lung and is thought to be the missing link between, like... The evolution from the sea to the land. Correct. Okay, I hear you. (laughs) So while at Allegheny... It was not good enough to just, you know, graduate with an A, B, and an M, A in biology, studying, hoping to try and find the link between in evolution mm-hmm. between sea and land. No, yeah. that was insufficient. Uh-huh. She also had to found the chapter, the local chapter of the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority in 1876, and she had to lead the charge to place the sophomore stone at Allegheny. Uh, dedicated to the learning, dedicated to learning with the phrase, everyone is his slash her own hope in Latin. Hmm. And she also uh, would go on to support the university by serving on its board of trustees. Wow. So she graduated from Allegheny with her MA in 1883. Mm-hmm. She, as seems to be common mm-hmm. with our... What do you think she did as her first step out of college? 
if it if it's if it's common, did she, did she become a teacher? Ding ding ding. <laughs> she left school, so she wanted to contribute to society, but didn't know how. So and she became a teacher. That's the best way to contribute to society. <laughs> so she lasted for exactly two years <laughs> teaching. Mm-hmm. Want to guess what the reason is for her leaving? She wasn't allowed to teach what she wanted to teach. Close, but not quite. <laughs> she was exhausted by the workload and exasperated by the low wages. <laughs> oh, so the other side of it. Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> I don't get paid enough <laughs> I don't get for paid the enough. amount of work that I need to do. This is not a nine-to-five job. This is a 24-7 job. <laughs> I get paid less than a babysitter. Like, it's just... This is ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So, she quit as because she had been headmistress at a college in Poland, Ohio. Uh-huh. Um, so she returned to Pennsylvania where she met the editor of the Kachkachuan. Kachkachuan. Kachkachuan? C-H-A-U-T-A-U-Q-U-A-N. Well, that ain't going to help me. I'd have to actually <laughs> see it. I can't spell in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> that word, that word, uh, Thomas L. Flood, Theodore L. Flood, and he offered her the a position to write for the publication. Hmm. So this is her start in journalism. Okay. She initially would work two weeks on and then two weeks at home, which allowed her to continue her own studies in biology. Hmm. However, in 1886, she became the managing editor for the uh, magazine, and she began writing brief items and worked up to longer features to establish her writing style and voice. Yeah. So her first article was The Arts and Industries of Cincinnati, Hmm. and it appeared in December of 1886. So this is her first published work. From there... She would build her writing style, and it's her writing style has been described by uh, Steve Weinberg in Taking on the Trust. So it's a book about her battle against Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. Said Tarbell would imbue her articles, essays, and books with moral content grounded in her unwavering rectitude. That rectitude, while sometimes suggesting inflexibility, drove her instincts for reform, a vital element in her future confrontation with Rockefeller. It's all very, like, dramatic. Basically, everything I've read for Ida Tarbell is very dramatic. But everything I've read about her says she wasn't particularly dramatic. Like, she just was, like... She wrote the truth as she she saw it. Exactly. And that's, I mean... Because I imagine because she's a woman, right? It sounds like she's being very stubborn about it. Like that's just surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, her first big article for the Chattawagon mm-hmm. was entitled "Women as Inventors," and it was Ooh. um, it was basically a rebuke of an article written by Mary Lowe Dickinson claimed that the number of women patent owners was was 300 and that women would never become successful inventors. 
So Tarbell went down to Washington D.C. to the Patent Office anyway, hold on. and and started putting together a list and put together a list of two thousand women who had patents. Now I wonder if at the time she got, um, which I'm forgetting the name of the lady we already talked about, the mother of grits. Oh yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, she didn't get the patent though in her name, right? She got no. it in her husband's name, if I remember. But I wonder if maybe she was like, "Hey, this lady in Philadelphia." <laughs> Has it. Pennsylvania, or wherever it was. <laughs> she she got it before we were even a country. Boom. Yep. So she then started, like, basically doing individual articles on those. So Tarbell's, the, the sub-article was, three things worth knowing and believing. One, that women have invented a large number of useful articles. Two, that these patents are not confined to clothes and kitchen devices, as skeptical masculine mind of heirs. <laughs> And three, the invention in this the intent invention in this field is a field in which women have have large possibilities. I don't. You you claim she, that she's not that dramatic, but that's pretty much. <laughs> that's like when somebody tells you you can't do that, and you just go, "Watch me!" <laughs> like just. I mean, that is like, very much. She does dramatic things, but she's not like a dramatic person. Yeah, she writes dramatically. Yeah. As you should, to get your voice heard. (laughs) So, at this point, she becomes very interested in writing about women in history. Mm. And in 1887, she has a falling out with uh, Theodore Flood and the Chikachuan. Why there's debate? Hmm. There is the obvious scandal. That's not okay. <laughs> it is sad. That was the first thing in my line was like, did he try to ask her out? <laughs> well, uh, scandal may have the some of the scandal seems to have been maybe more than asking her out kind Oy. of issues. However, the relatively accepted one is that Flood had placed when his son got old enough, had placed his son's name on the masterhead above Tarbell's. Ooh, well, that's not... So... What does your son do? Professional slap in the face. Yeah. I'm more inclined to believe that. So, Mm -hmm. after leaving the Chikadwan, Tarbell decided to move to Paris in 1891 (laughs) at the age of 34 to live and work. Because, you know, after... After a professional bad breakup, you move to Paris. Yeah, I mean, everybody does that. The name of the game. (laughs) So, at, while in Paris, she roomed with three female friends mm-hmm. um, who were also previously from the Chikatawan. Oh. And it was a very exciting time. So, she frequently wrote for um, American newspapers and for American expats living in Europe Ooh. regarding the happenings in Paris and things going on there. At the time... You were getting the Impressionist movement with Degas and Monet mm-hmm. and Van Gogh. She attended the Can-Can at the Moulin Rouge, Ooh. which she, in a letter to her family, refused to discuss it and advised them to read Mark Twain's description of the innocence abroad <laughs> because she couldn't bear to describe to her parents what was occurring. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I really like this show, but don't ever watch it. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Um, 
during this time, she had a very active social life. She met Prince Said Tusman, the cousin of the Egyptian ruler at the time. She had a possible romance with Charles Downer Hazen, the future French historian and professor at Smith College. Yes, so she was very active socially and also very active professionally. Hmm. At the time, she decided to write her first biography on Madame Roland, the leader of the influential Salon during the French Revolution. Mm. So, as Tarbell is writing this biography, Mm -hmm. a man by the name of Samuel McClure Mm -hmm. comes across an article by Tarbell entitled The Paving The Paving of the Streets of Paris by Monsieur Alphand, which described how the French carried out large public works, mm-hmm. which she had written. And he immediately decided he wanted to hire her for his new magazine. Okay. He just he read her article and he's like, I want her. Mm-hmm. So he flew out, or well, not flew out, but he traveled to Paris. Okay. In an attempt to woo Tarbell into coming back to the States and writing for his magazine. <laughs> and Tarbell described him as Will of the Wisp. Will of the Wisp. Okay. I get that. Because he overstayed his visit, visit, missed his train, and had to borrow $40 from Tarbell oh to travel on to Geneva, where he was supposed to be going. <laughs> And so she had basically no interest in him as a boss. And she just found him completely, like, ridiculous. She assumed she would never see that $40 again, which was a lot of money. It was actually all of the money for that her is, vacation. Yeah, that's a lot of money for that time. But he had the office wire it to her the next day. Okay. So she immediately got it back. She declined his offer, stating she wanted to finish the biography. Okay. Because he wanted her as an editor. Oh. So McClure then decided he was going to send out the, the art director for the magazine, August Jockey, mm-hmm. to visit Tarbell to show her the layout for the magazine and basically try and convince her. Make that magazine look amazing, Jockey. <laughs> like, all of this, all I ever think about is Walt Disney trying to woo... Um, Julie Andrews into playing Mary Poppins. Uh huh. Like, just come on, come on, you come can on. do it. Come on, do it. We can do it. Sorry, I'm pregnant. We'll wait nine months. It's fine. We'll just, you, just do it. You just need to it. be Mary Poppins. <laughs> I just, I need you to do this. <laughs> so eventually, Tarbell gives in, mm-hmm. and she agrees to write for McClure. <laughs> but she agrees to begin by writing freelance articles. Okay as their European correspondent because she wanted to finish the biography. Okay, fair. So she finishes the biography in which she describes the fact that she, and in the biography itself, it's described as being able to, you can kind of see where she has great admiration for this woman. Mm -hmm. And then the more and more she learns, the less and less admiration she has for the woman. (laughs) Because she basically decides that instead of being, you know, 
a forward thinker and a leader. She really was just following her husband's instincts and direction. And she was foolish enough to think that she could incite the violence and then control the violent mob to turn it off when she wanted to. And that foolishness is what caused her eventual beheading. Yeah. In the revolution. Mm -hmm. So you kind of watch this like... (laughs) So basically it was a one draft. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I I get it. I get it. It is. It it happens. Just like, oh, no, wait. You get more evidence as you're writing and you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) So she finished the biography. She doesn't get it published at that time. Mm. But she returns back to the U.S., to join the staff of McClure for a salary of $3,000 a year. Wow. Right? I think. I don't know. No, that's, that's a lot of... I, mean, like, I don't know conversion. It just sounds should, like a lot. So we should... The conversion calculator says that $3,000 in 1894, when she started working for McClure, uh-huh. would be the equivalent of $90,795 oh today. That's a lot of money. So she was well paid. She was very well paid. She was, she was very well paid. Um, <laughs> but so she returned to the U.S. and moved to New York City. In June of that year, so the very first year that she was there, McClure contacted her and commissioned her to do a biographical series on Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> because... Okay. I don't know why I laughed. I thought, like... You're cut out biographies. We need a biography on Napoleon. Yes. I do women, though. (laughs) (laughs) But McClure had caught wind that the Century magazine, McClure's rival, was working on a series of articles about Bonaparte. So he basically was like, no, we have to beat them to it. Okay. All right. That makes sense. The schedule for the book was tight. The first installment came out only six weeks after she initially started the work. Doable. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's really hard. That's really hard. Back then when you couldn't have computers or typewriters, like that's really hard. Right. So Tarbell stayed at Twin Oaks in Washington, Mm D.C., where she worked with um, the gardener Green Hubbard. uh, And she used Hubbard's extensive collection of Napoleon material and memorabilia, as well as resources of the Library of Congress and the U.S. State Department to basically piece this all together. A gardener? Gardener Green Hubbard. It's his name. Oh, it's his name. I was like, the way you said it, I thought the gardener Green Hubbard. So no. I was like, wait, what? She stayed with Gardener Green Hubbard. Oh, his name, <laughs> not his profession. I was very confused. Yeah. yeah. Gardener just has all this information on Napoleon. Okay. Well, maybe. I mean, um. <laughs> some people collect weird things. Right? But so... Uh, Tarbell described this as biography on a gallop. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Basically. Yeah. So it went huge. Wow. It it doubled the circulation of McClure's magazine up to 100,000. So it went from 50,000 to 100,000 just due to this series. And then by the end of the seventh installment, it had quadrupled. People have to know about Napoleon. Right? (laughs) Tarbell would receive, she then turned it into a book Mm -hmm. after its installment publications, and she received royalties for the rest of her life on the book. The first edition, they sold 
over 70,000 copies. Wow. When you think about a time when most people like didn't know how to read or write. Yeah, that's like, a lot of copies. <laughs> it's a lot of copies. It's a lot of copies. So she also used that as the basis for finding a publisher for her Madame Roland book mm-hmm. in Scribner's. So Scribner's published her Madame Roland book because that was part of her caveat to publishing the Napoleon contract book. wheel. Yep. man. <laughs> So from there, she decided, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte's not a big enough get. She then became, did a series, a 20-part series on the life of Abraham Lincoln. Wow. Okay, so this is like, we're, we're talking less than 50 years after mm-hmm. Lincoln's death. Yeah. And she's going to do the first big investigative journalist report on Lincoln. That's pretty cool. Right? Kind of want to read it. (laughs) Well, exactly. And the best was the fact that the editors at the Century magazine, so the competing magazine, Mm -hmm. basically scoffed at the idea that they have a woman doing Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) But she managed to find uh, information from the private secretaries of Lincoln, John Nikolai and John Mm -hmm. Hay. Yep. And she traveled the country doing interviews with people who had personally known Lincoln, including his son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Wow. Right? So, and Robert Todd shared an early and previously unpublished type, uh, type out of Lincoln as a younger man. So the, the image, derogatory type. Mm. And she followed it up with a lost speech by Lincoln from 1856. <laughs> by tracking down Henry Clay Whitney. Mm-hmm. Who is claimed to have written down written. the notes? Yeah. Wow. So this publication basically made it impossible to stop Tarbell. Yeah. Because by the time she was done with this series, McClure's circulation had climbed over three hundred thousand people. Hmm. By 1900. So, like, a lot of people was reading her word. Yeah. So, in just over a decade, she now had a viewership of 300,000 people. Yep. Basically, what it was determined was (laughs) that Tarbell, working as a manager, as the editor of Century Magazine... Mm Mm-hmm. So she finishes Lincoln. She decides to become an editor. She's doing the editing. And basically her and McClure's partner basically are the ones driving while also directing McClure. Because McClure is described as kind of like, you know, head in the clouds. He's got all these ideas, but he never gets anything done. The will-o'-wisp person, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you have... Ida Tarbell basically making the gears turn. 
eventually, so she would continue to write profiles for McClure throughout the 1890s, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Including in 1898, when she was set to interview Nelson A. Miles, the commanding general of the United States, when the battleship USS Maine was blown up in Havana Harbor. Okay. Tarbell was allowed to keep her appointment, despite the explosion, and observed the response of the U.S. Army headquarters to write about. Wow. This is the point where she meets Teddy Roosevelt, who was already organizing what would become the Rough Riders. And Tarbell described him as bursting into the army office like a boy on roller skates. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Which I just, I appreciate that image of Teddy Roosevelt just being like, I'm here, I'm here, I want to do this, I want to do this. Okay, I'm gone, bye. I'm here, I'm here, let's do this, let's do that. Okay, I'm gone. <laughs> I'm too busy, though. <laughs> uh, so, we are now at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And McClure decides to begin an effort to expose the ills of American society. So they start taking things on, like crime in America, mm-hmm. and poverty, but they decide they want to look into, they're looking for a big topic to cover again. Yep. They, they need a big topic. So they turn to Ida. And in discussions with the rest of the editors, they settle on a decision to do a story about Standard Oil which is the largest oil trust, because at that time you didn't Mm. have multinational corporations, you had trusts, is what they were called. Yep. And it was the largest trust at the time, headed by Franklin D. Rockefeller. Yep. The biggest of the big. Because of Tarbell's firsthand experience with life in Pennsylvania oil fields, and the fact that Standard Oil was represented by only one person, Rockefeller... They determined this was the story to go with because it would be easier to, they had the, she had the personal knowledge Mm -hmm. and they had a through line, which was Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. So Tarbell traveled to Europe to meet with McClure, who was off gallivanting around, Mm -hmm. trying to get him to buy in on the idea. Okay. By the time she hunted him down, he was staying at a spa in Milan trying to recoup from whatever shenanigans he was doing. Mm. And according to the stories, McClure was so excited that he just jumped up and left. He's like, all right, we're going. (laughs) And Tarbell, and he decided Tarbell had to be the one to do it using the same format she did for Napoleon and Lincoln. Okay. So, on her return to the States, Tarbell handed over all of the editorial role that she had at McClure and just began in 1901 a meticulous investigation of Rockefeller's interest in oil and the Standard Oil Trust. Tarbell's father caught wind and recommended she not do this. (laughs) (laughs) Can you not? Well, why don't you want me to? Because it's dangerous, my love. Yeah, basically. You don't know. (laughs) 
you're, you're shoveling up the muck. <laughs> you, you're stirring the pot and people tend to get pissy about it. Yeah. She, he warned her that Rockefeller would stop at nothing and would ruin the magazine. Mm-hmm. In fact, while she was doing this investigating work, Rockefeller had one of the banks threaten the credit of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And you had to run a magazine on credit because that's the way business works. Mm-hmm. To which Tarbell apparently shocked the bank executives by replying, of course, it makes no difference to me. Basically just telling them, I've got enough money that, like, yeah, you can tank the magazine. I'm still going to write this. It's still going to happen. Yeah. So she spends the next several years putting this biography together. She gets a break in the story mm-hmm. when she was able to find a book called The Rise and Fall of the South Improvement Company, which had been published in 1873. You see, Standard Oil and Rockefeller were an outgrowth of the South Improvement Company, which which had gone belly up when everybody found out what it was doing and all the protests. So it went away, Mm -hmm. and Standard Oil came onto the scene. And this book (laughs) describes the connecting link. Wow. Standard Oil and Rockefeller had actually tried to destroy all available copies of the book. Mm-hmm. But she was able to finally locate one copy in the New York Public Library. Wow. So she found possibly the last copy of the book. She then got another break from within Standard Oil itself, who had hired a young man to shred papers. <laughs> which described evidence that the railroads were giving Standard Oil advanced information about refiner shipments Mm. so that they could undercut refiners. Mm -hmm. Well, this young man recognized a name of one of those refiners as his Sunday school teacher. So he took the stack of papers to his Sunday school teacher who turned them over to Ida. Wow. Finally, the biggest was the fact that Ida Bell was able to get interviews Mm -hmm. with, uh, I'm trying to get his full name, Henry H. Rogers. He was Mm -hmm. the vice president of Standard Oil at the time. Ooh. And considered basically the third man in line of importance. Now, see, here's the thing. Rogers normally didn't do interviews and was Mm -hmm. very tight-lipped about business in general. Well, yeah. However, because it was Ida interviewing him as a woman, as a woman from Pennsylvania Oil, Mm -hmm. he presumed it to be a complimentary article that she was writing. And so he began to just kind of tell her everything. I'm, sh- I'm sure she persuaded him in some way, like... Oh, yeah, of course. That's how you have to journalism, is you've got to make him think you're going to show... <laughs> think so, you're going to lie. <laughs> yeah. So, the investigation began in 1901, mm-hmm. and the first article was published in November 1902, mm-hmm. so a full year later. And it ran for 19 months... Whew. In so over into 1904 wow. in the Clures. 
So, Ida Tarbell's article on mm-hmm. Standard Oil led to a number of things. <laughs> One, <laughs> she ushered in the muckraking journalism era. Yep. She, this was the first big article of that. She essentially, by doing this, invented a new form of journalism. In particular, <laughs> investigative. Investigative. Mm-hmm. Which did not exist prior to 1900. That's cool. (laughs) Furthermore, her article Mm -hmm. led to the landmark antitrust case, Mm -hmm. Destroying Standard Oil, which ruled that Standard Oil was an illegal monopoly, Mm -hmm. and the U.S. Supreme Court ordered its breakup in 1911. Yep. Sorry, Rockefeller. So, (laughs) that is Ida Tarbell. She would go on to write numerous other uh, articles and biographies, Mm -hmm. including her own autobiography. However, this was her big explosion onto the scene and what she's best known for. In fact... The book was adapted into a play in 1905 called The Lion and the Mouse. Uh-uh. Ida turned down the offer to star in it <laughs> with an offer of $2,500 salary per week for the 25-week run. Whoa. So you're looking at, yeah. So based on our conversion that $3,000 is about $90,000 today. That's a lot of money down, a week. <laughs> she turned down basically like $80,000 a week in money because Jeez. she was not an actress. So well, I mean, actress. like, I feel like it would have been like, have, why? Why do you want me representing you? <laughs> yeah. So during this time and the interesting little tidbits that come along with this. So the way she scored an interview with Henry Rogers. Mm-hmm was because she was introduced to him by none other than Mark Twain. Oh. Who she'd become friends with through writing yeah. and investigative journalism. What's Mark Twain's real name? Samuel Clemens, right? Samuel Clemens. Yeah, I mean. Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain. Better known as Mark Twain. <laughs> so, Ida Tarbell would then go on to write several essential articles for the American magazine in which she investigated tariffs and their impact on American businesses. Ooh. She met with Jane Addams and stayed at the Hull House in 1908. She just generally was moving and grooving throughout mm. the time. And I could literally, like, keep going on. Like, this is clearly <laughs> our longest piece. Yeah. But one of the interesting pieces is she, in fact was a feminist by example, but not by ideology. So she expressed and wrote against the women's suffrage movement for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. Yet she herself was a woman of equal standing to men. Correct. So So she's basically talking against herself. Yes. Yeah. Um, Basically, a lot of her upset was not necessarily in the goals but in the way they were going about it she I just basically that. didn't see the point like she's like the right to vote really doesn't do you much good like you should be 
working towards other issues and you should be including more people and yeah I, I I can definitely see that like definitely as a feminist myself there are feminists that I'm like why are you doing that though <laughs> I hear you but, but uh so Ida Dar- Tarbell passed away of pneumonia in Bridgeport Connecticut on January 6th 1944 hmm. uh she was 86 at the time hmm. In 1993, the Ida Tarbell House in Easton, Connecticut, was declared a national historic landmark. Ooh. And Ida Tarbell was inducted post posthumously, I can speak, mm-hmm. into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls, New York, on September 14th, 2002. Awesome. In the same time, the United States Postal Service issued a commemorative stamp honoring Tarbell as a part of a series of four stamps honoring women journalists. Yay. So, there have been multiple, multiple books and movies and references to Ida Tarbell and all of her work. So... Citations. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of them. I direct everybody to her Wikipedia page because, quite honestly, I'm pretty sure it was written by one of her, uh, probably a historian who knows her. For instance, there are 144 citations to the Wikipedia page. I also read the Smithsonian's article entitled. The Woman Who Took on the Tycoon by Gilbert King. Mm. ConnecticutHistory.org's article, Ida Tarbell, The Woman Who Took on Standard Oil, uh, which did not by Andy Pasick. Mm. The PBS uh, article entitled Ida Tarbell under the Rockefellers. And... The Wikipedia pages for The Pilgrim's Progress, Muckraking, and Standard Oil. Oh. So, that is Ida Tarbell, the queen of muckraking. Yes. (laughs) The muckraking queen. Jessica, where can people talk to you at? You guys can talk to me on Twitter as J.M. Bailey writes. And you can find me at Geek Elite Media on our Facebook page forward slash Geek Elite Media. Archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts can be found at geekleapmedia.com. We also have our Patreon page, which has extra episodes of this podcast and lots of our other podcasts, yep, yep, yep. along with some really fun and cool things. Mm-hmm. So if you've got the ability, please join us on our Patreon page. Yes. But until next time, this is the United States of Women saying always remember to geek, geek out. out. This concludes our broadcast. 